Hello, and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, maybe it's apparent, but we don't really carefully script these episodes. You know, we just kind of wing it. This is what we all do for a living is talk about what's going on in Washington. Although I have to say, we try a little bit to sequence who's going to ask what or answer what. And so there is a little bit of planning that goes into these. I have to say today, even that modest amount of planning is not happening because things are unfolding pretty quickly here in Washington as it relates to what's going on with infrastructure. And so, hey, we're just truly winging it today, but bear with us because there's still a lot to talk about and we'll do the best we can to let you know what we think is going on with infrastructure and ultimately, of course, with the Biden tax plan. We are joined today by our regulars, Tom Stout and Jen Acuna. Yes, Jen. So first, Jen, welcome back. We missed you. Glad to have you back on the podcast. You've had a baby since we last talked to you. And I just want to say again, congratulations, and I hope everything's good at home. Thank you. Happy to be back. And the baby is doing excellent. That's great. You know, Jen, you came back this week and said, okay, what did I miss? And only half jokingly, I think, Tom, you and I said not really anything, because since April, when you went out, we've been having more or less the same conversation, which is, are we going to get anything bipartisan on infrastructure? And then what's going to happen from here? So it appears we might get a bipartisan infrastructure deal. So just remind us, first of all, what happened this week? And then tell us in this agreement what's in it. Go ahead, Tom. It looks like there's a deal. There was a vote on it, what's called a motion to proceed, which is where the filibuster usually takes place. And it got 67 votes. It got 17 Republican votes for it. And while that doesn't necessarily mean they're all going to vote for the bill, uh, they're just voting to consider the bill, it's a pretty good indication that this has enough support that it's going to get the 60 votes that it needs to advance under the usual procedures. And just to sort of clarify what the numbers are, what it includes is $548 billion in new spending for what's traditionally called infrastructure. That's roads and bridges and water and broadband and utility grid. It's 548 in new spending above baseline spending, the level of spending we've been doing for infrastructure. And it's important to keep that in mind. You hear other numbers floating around like 1.2 trillion. That includes that baseline spending, what we've been spending before. And so as not to compare apples and oranges, President's $2.7 trillion jobs plan and his $1.8 trillion families plan all represented new spending. So essentially what this bill does is it pulls some of the programs out of the jobs bill, $548 billion worth of them, it fully or partially funds those programs, and offsets the cost with, at present, only $539 billion in offsets because they don't have a score back yet on one of the minor ones to make up that $9 billion difference. And interestingly, it also includes is an offset $56 billion in revenue as a result of increased economic growth. This is the macroeconomic scoring. This is probably the most controversial of the elements because it has implications going forward. And by that, I mean, I think we can expect to see congressional Democrats in the White House claiming the same kind of macroeconomic scoring for the bigger reconciliation bill that's coming later, the, the three and a half trillion or whatever it's going to be that follows this. That's basically what they've done, and it looks like it is going forward, and it'll probably go forward, I think, relatively quickly. 
pretty surprising at this point, you know, having gotten the 67 votes on the motion to proceed, that they would fail at this point. Like, as you said, Tom, it's not impossible, but I think we ought to assume most likely that this is going to get through the Senate. And let me just ask you one other question, Tom. Is there any reason to imagine that if it gets through the Senate, it would not get through the House? I mean, nobody's talking about what the House is going to do on this ultimately. So I'll just catch you kind of cold on that one. But what are your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, this is the lowest hanging fruit of the bigger Biden infrastructure, you know, hard and soft infrastructure plan. This is the stuff that everybody agrees ought to be done, which is, you know, why it's gotten bipartisan support in the Senate to pass with 67 votes, at least so far. The House will do this. The only question is the timing, because the House is intent on linking passage of this with passage of the additional three, three and a half trillion dollars, whatever they agree on in the reconciliation bill. They want to do them both together or not at all. Yeah, that sounds right to me that the House, you know, look, if you've got a bunch of moderate Democrats in the Senate who are on board, then presumably the moderate Democrats in the House will be. If you've been able to keep the progressive Democrats in the Senate on board by promising them that second bill, as you just suggested, presumably that's going to work in the House, too. And, of course, you know, we only need a simple majority, a majority of one to pass it in the House. And I would guess if you've got 17 Republicans on board in the Senate, you'll have a number of Republicans in the House on board. So I think it's likely that it'll pass in the House. It's just odd that nobody's really talking about that yet. But I, I think it's probably safe to say and we'll see how it goes, but they'll get there. So that's the big picture. Of course, we're talking about tax here. So, Jen, let me come to you. What are the, the mandates that Republicans had coming into this bipartisan deals? That, you know, they didn't want to raise taxes to pay for this. So did they raise taxes? Or are they proposing to raise taxes to pay for this thing? Well, there are some revenue offsets, as Tom mentioned, you know, some of the non-tax offsets. There are a couple. And, you know, what's interesting about these two the first one is the reinstatement of the Superfund excise tax. And the second one is reporting of cryptocurrency. And what's really fascinating about these two is that they're relatively non-controversial. So a lot of the revenue raisers that we've been talking about over the last few months to fund a large spending bill, potentially in reconciliation, these two kind of came out of the woodwork, right? These weren't those headline tax revenue raisers. So you can see that they're looking for a low-hanging fruit, as you guys just mentioned, and nothing particularly controversial that can append this deal. The reporting on crypto is an interesting one because that truly, you know, we've been talking about Superfund for a while, but the reporting on crypto kind of popped up in this deal. And it's, I think it's relevant because it goes to some of the other reporting proposals that the Biden administration has, in particular, the bank reporting proposal that was in the Green Book that raises, according to the Green Book, a huge amount of money. I think something like $460 billion. People are wondering, well, would that happen? And I think conventional wisdom, which might be right here, is since it's not really raising taxes on anybody, that it might not be that controversial because it's just providing more information to the IRS. It's not technically a tax increase. And you sort of see that test driving that theory in miniature here on this crypto reporting thing, because, again, Republicans seem to agree to it. Let's just report more information to the IRS about crypto and we're not necessarily raising taxes. So am I reading too much into it that it perhaps suggests that some of the other reporting proposals the administration has might not be that controversial either? No, I think you're exactly on point. I mean, it's a whole lot easier to defend a reporting requirement from a political perspective, identify it as, look, this is just more transparency. And, you know, this is a good government type of provision where you just want more transparency, you want more compliance versus, hey, we're going to increase tax rates, right? That's a lot harder of a sell. 
I agree with that. So that's the first thing I thought of when I saw the crypto reporting thing is, ah, more reporting seems to be kind of the solution du jour in terms of raising revenue. But it's the kind of thing that Congress historically finds a way to get done because it's less controversial. All right, Tom, let me come back to you. We've sort of thrown this question out there. And look, I'll be honest, we were a little skeptical through a lot of this that they would find the ability to do a bipartisan deal. I think if you go back and listen to some of our prior episodes, that comes through. But, you know, they did it. So let me ask you this. The question we asked before is what's really in this for both Republicans and Democrats? So let me ask you, what do you think is in this deal for Democrats? Why did Democrats, all 50 of them in the Senate, rally to support this bipartisan package that they worked on with Republicans? I think it's pretty clear that Biden really wants to be bipartisan, not just look bipartisan, but to do as much as he can to be bipartisan. And he saw an opportunity here because this group had put together at least the broad outline of a deal a couple of months ago that he might actually be able to move ahead on a bipartisan basis. It's also politically probably necessary for him to do that because in order to pass his broader reconciliation package, he's at some point going to need the support of uh, assuming he's going to have tax increases in it and not have Republicans voting for it, every Democrat in the Senate. And it was clear that Senator Manchin and Cinema and a couple of others were reluctant to move ahead, at least on a purely partisan basis, although they did it back in March with the rescue bill. So he needed for their sake politically too to make the attempt at bipartisanship. Yeah, that sounds right, going back to Cinema and Manchin. Yeah, they're so deeply personally invested in getting this deal done, a bipartisan deal done, that it became apparent that to keep them on board with the second bill, that they really needed to find a way to get this first bill done to give them a you know, a win on all their personal efforts in finding bipartisan ground. So that makes a lot of sense to me, Tom. So Jen, let me ask you then, let's flip it around the other way. What do you think is in this for Republicans? Why do you think Republicans, 17 of them, ultimately agreed to this? Yeah, no, I mean, I've been thinking about that, right? Because as Tom mentioned, there's a lot of upside for Democrats in having a bipartisan bill. And it actually kind of paves the road. It makes it a lot easier for the second tranche for that reconciliation bill, not just in terms of how big the bill would be, because this kind of carved out a significant portion of it, but also some of the pay-fors, right? And there's also some goodies in there, right, that everyone wants to own, infrastructure spending. And I think that's also what kept some Republicans at the table because the Hill and on the Hill and at back at home, infrastructure spending is extremely popular. In this particular bill, this is like highways funding, roads, bridges, like these are the type of meat and potatoes issues that you can take home during an election cycle and say, look, I voted for this and this is what I delivered. And I think that's what is being perceived as the reason that some Republicans were willing to sign on to it. And everyone likes to claim glory. So I think that is what was really being viewed as the benefit. Another perceived advantage was that it was pretty much expected that if there wasn't a bipartisan bill, that this would all be rolled into the reconciliation bill anyway, that would potentially be passed, except it would be viewed as being passed only along partisan lines. So because of that, it was viewed as somewhat inevitable. There was um, the ability to pick off some Republican members on a bipartisan deal. Yeah. Well, and more than just some. I mean, 17 is... Yeah, significant. Right. And we we talked about 10 or 11 participating in this process. So I always assumed that the high water mark would be 60 or 61, but getting 67 was surprising to me. All right. So just quickly, Tom, 
Where do we go from here now? Okay, so let's just say that they pass this thing. And here we are on July 30th. August recess is nearly upon us. What else does the Senate want to do now, you know, let's saying that they get this done? What do they have to do next? In particular, do they have to do anything before they leave town? Well, the Senate has another week that they're scheduled to be in, and that can always be pushed a couple of days further if needed. What the Democrats are intent on doing is, after passing this bipartisan infrastructure bill, to pass a budget resolution to start the process for the reconciliation bill that has the rest of the infrastructure package that Biden has put together. And, you know, they've tentatively agreed, at least among the budget committee Democrats, that three and a half trillion dollars is what they plan to put in that budget resolution. That budget resolution, you know, as you recall, you know, doesn't actually contain much detail. It really is just the top line spending and, and tax numbers targets that they can try to hit with the bill later on. But Schumer is intent on getting that through the Senate as well before they leave for the August recess, because you know they, they fear failure to do that will cause them to lose some momentum, which they're going to need in order to get all that other stuff done in the fall. Well, that's a heavy lift to get done before August 7th. It'll be interesting to see if they can get that done or if they're going to have to hang around a little bit or if they just postpone that till they return in September. But that is, as you say, Tom, really important next step because that's what sets the stage for this Democratic-owned bill, which includes all the Biden tax increases that we've talked about for the last year plus on this podcast. So let me take it to that question then. And Jen, I'll start with you. What does this bipartisan deal that we just got done talking about, what does it really mean for the Biden tax plan? You know, the possibility, the size of, you know, the path for the Biden tax increases on both corporates and individuals we've been talking about over the last year. Does this put us on a different trajectory or are we on the same one? What do you think, Jen? You know, it's funny. I don't think that it does put us on a much different footing or trajectory than if it had all been bundled in, right? Because the revenue raisers that were used weren't those big revenue raisers that we've been talking about in the Biden tax plan. So those have been reserved for later down the road. The one possible issue that I could see coming up is that a lot of the hook for the next reconciliation bill was infrastructure, right? There was a lot of talk about this reconciliation bill being a large infrastructure bill. And by carving out maybe a portion of this infrastructure in a bipartisan deal, maybe it makes the package less attractive. Although, you know, that doesn't look to be the case, at least to date. But I think that's the gamble that Republicans are making by joining on to this bipartisan deal. What do you think, Tom? Does this change the dynamic for the Biden tax plan in a meaningful way or no? Well, certainly the Democrats don't think it does. And the, the idea here is is that the two will remain linked. That's part of the strategy with not having the House vote on the infrastructure bill, the, the bipartisan bill, without having in hand the reconciliation bill that's passed the Senate as well. In the minds and strategy on the Democratic side, this is just one big plan. And the bipartisan structure plan just represents a part of that that's been pulled out to be voted on separately and getting Republican votes in the Senate, but that they could pass just as easily, they think, either way, with or without the bipartisan plan, just putting the two back into one package. And from our standpoint, you know, I think the most important issue is that as it's still envisioned, they've got at least at the moment three and a half trillion dollars more spending that they've got in mind. 
that's going to have to have some part of it, if not all of it, offset, which means all of those tax proposals that Biden's made and the jobs and families plans, you know, are all still on the table. They try to sort out how much spending they want to do, how much they want to offset, whether they want to deficit finance, any of it, you know, all those little little details that are going to take them the next couple of months to try to figure out. I think that's right from both of you. You know, look, I think the tax plan and the tax discussions we have are still pretty much the same as we've been having. You know, there's a finite amount of tax increases the Democrats are going to be able to agree to. And I don't think that number was increased or decreased by this package that, you know, this bipartisan deal that's happening. And so I think that, you know, we're still going to be having the conversation. If you look at the totality of the Biden plan, plus things that we may see from Congress we have not yet seen, I think they're still going to have to figure out, and this is part of the process, how much can Democrats agree to to raise taxes to help drive that spending? And I think that's still going to be the case. And so if you're out there wondering, does this really change things when it comes to taxes in a meaningful way? I think we're all sort of in agreement that no, not too much. I think we're going to have that same conversation. Well, that's all we have time for today. Tom, thank you. Jen, great to have you back. Thank you for your insight today as well. I guess in parting, you know, the one thing I would say is I think the obvious takeaway here is bipartisanship is not dead, not totally. And you have to view this as a win for the president. I mean, getting Republicans and Democrats to come together on an infrastructure bill is a win for the president. He said he wanted to do it and he delivered, as did a number of senators, both Republicans and Democrats were able to pull this off. And in some ways, it's heartening to see that they can still work together. Although, of course, in fairness, they did quite a bit last year, of course, on the CARES Act and other pieces of COVID legislation. But back to the question of you know, what was really in this for Democrats and Republicans? Why would they rally to support this bipartisan infrastructure bill? I think, Jen, you said it well. It's so easy to overthink this. Occam's razor would suggest that they voted for the infrastructure spending because they like the infrastructure spending, right? That they just like to spend on infrastructure. And you can overthink that there's also this sort of strategy going on in the background. And I think in many ways, it can be pretty simple and pretty straightforward, which is they just wanted to support the spending in the end. Well, with that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon. <laughs>